the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Ephraim the Syrian writes in his hymns on faith, a hymn in praise of the Eucharist, Holy Communion. And he writes, in your bread there is hidden the spirit who is not consumed. In your wine there dwells the fire that is not drunk. The spirit is in your bread, the fire in your wine, a manifest wonder that our lips have received. And he makes clear in this hymn the amazing nature of this great mystery that God gives of himself to us. Today we continue our series on this acronym CAFES, which we've been looking at for a few weeks. And if you're not familiar with this acronym or if you're new to us, it stands for Confession, Almsgiving, Fasting, Eucharist, Scripture, the Saints, all undergirded by prayer. And we're delving into these to explore some of their significance. And today I've been allocated the Eucharist. There are many things that can be said about it. And what I'd like to do is offer some reflections that I've recently had on its significance. And I'd like to start by thinking of the Eucharist as food and drink. We often think that Christ's body is like our physical food and his blood is like our physical drink that the things of heaven are like the things of earth, and we make those comparisons. But as the priests who lead the Lord of Spirits podcast make clear, the exact opposite is true. Heavenly realities are not like earthly things, but the other way around. Earthly things are like the heavenly. The things of this earth are a shadow. The heavenly is the real. The earthly is the type or the pattern, and the heavenly is the fulfillment. And we see this all throughout our lives. For example, sleep and waking up every morning are the shadow. They point to dying and rising again to eternal life. Our clerical vestments, or indeed all beautiful clothing, are a shadow. The reality is a soul that is beautifully adorned with the presence of Christ. Breathing physical air is the shadow. The reality is us dwelling in the Holy Spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. Our homes are but a shadow, hinting at the heavenly mansions that are the lot of the faithful. So physical food and drink point to the real food that is going to satisfy us, and that is Christ our Lord. In our modern society, we have taken the shadows to be the real. We think that our material clothes, homes, possessions, food are the ultimate thing to live for. We think that they are the fulfillment, and we've forgotten the fact that they only point to the heavenly. Other cultures, I think, have a better sense of this. For example, the native Africans in the Kalahari Desert have the concept of the lesser and greater hunger. And the lesser hunger they understand to be the desire for food. But they have the awareness of the greater hunger, the desire for something more which truly satisfies. And they know that the greater hunger is that which we should live for. In John chapter 6, Christ makes this exact point clear when he's speaking to the Jews in his great discourse on the Eucharist, which his listeners didn't understand. He says to them, to the Jewish uh, people there, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. The earthly food. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In this way, we could say that the rampant greed and excess that we see in the world, which is never satisfied, especially in this consumerist season of Thanksgiving leading on to Christmas, the desire for more and more food and drink, possessions, really points to this lack of awareness of the greater hunger, the lack of the true bread, which is Christ. And we see this exemplified in the rich man in the gospel today, who's got no further thought than what he can do with all the abundance of his possessions and his wealth. So the Eucharist then is the primary way that we can truly satisfy what we yearn for, the presence of God in our lives. And this Christmas, this nativity season, may we be people who yearn all the more for this greater, for that which satisfies the greater hunger rather than merely the lesser. Another aspect I'd like to look at today is related to how we commune of the Eucharist. In the Antiochian church in Australia in the 21st century, we are blessed to have the practice of communing frequently. It hasn't always been like this in the church, and it's even not like this in other Orthodox churches. A downside that can arise from this, however, is that we can take it for granted and lose the sense of holy awe and reverence that we should always maintain as we approach the chalice. Familiarity may not breed contempt exactly in this case, but it may lead to complacency. This is why the prayers before Holy Communion are so essential for both Saturday night and Sunday morning. They help form in us the proper attitude and guard against this sense of complacency. Now, many people might say they have no time for extra prayers on top of their evening prayers, on top of how busy we are, especially leading into December. Yet it's interesting how we will find time, hours, to watch a movie that we like, perhaps on a Saturday night, and people will definitely be finding time to watch the games of the World Cup in the weeks ahead. If we can find the space for some, surely we can find the time to prepare ourselves adequately for the Eucharist. Something else that... Something else that helps us in preparing ourselves adequately is meditating on examples from Scripture where people also encountered God, and we look at how they behaved in His presence. In the hymn on the Eucharist, which I quoted before, St. Ephraim does exactly this. He gives us a number of instances of people who have met God. Isaiah being touched on the lips by the coal from the seraph. The woman who dared to reach out and touch Christ's garment. The woman who likened herself to a dog eating crumbs from the master's table. And the forerunner, John the Baptist, not deeming himself worthy to untie Christ's sandals. In each of these examples, St. Ephraim makes clear that these holy people exhibit such reverential wonder, even almost a fear for their very lives, in even being near to God, and yet the point he makes is that we receive God's body and blood in our very mouths, filling our entire being. How much more humbled, how much more impacted, amazed should we be, not just in the communion line, but taking it a step further, asking ourselves, what kind of words should come from lips that have tasted God's body and blood? What kind of 
actions should hands and legs perform that have been animated with the deifying presence of God? What kind of thoughts should we think in minds that have been filled with the presence of God? What should be the meditations of our hearts, our feelings, our attitudes, our intentions when God's body and blood have entered into our bodies and souls? A final thing I'd like to look at about the Eucharist is this concept of living Eucharistically. I think people mean different things when they say this, but what it uh, is referring to is applying principles of the Eucharist to our daily lives. And uh, one thing that this does refer to is this concept of thanksgiving. But we've spoken about this before, so today I'd like to look at a couple other things related to this idea of living Eucharistically. And the first is offering our best. So bread and wine represent the best of what we can do as humans, using the wonders of natural processes to change dough to bread and juice to wine. And this is then what God takes, our very best, to make it his own body and blood, something that we've already worked at. And this is replicated in other facets of our lives, or it's a metaphor for our whole lives, that we do our best with what we have in all we do, with our family, with our friendships, in our workplaces, at school. And then we offer it to God, acknowledging that it is all a gift from Him, just like the priest will do in the liturgy at the moment of the offering. And then God comes and brings His power and grace and transforms our merely human efforts and endeavors into something so much more, into something for His kingdom and for His glory. The key here is in the offering. We must give our lives over for Him to transform. If we don't, our efforts remain merely human without the presence of God. Another idea related to living Eucharistically is this sense of, of breaking that we find in the Eucharist. That wheat has to be ground, that bread is broken, that grapes are crushed. Jesus' body had to be broken, and his blood had to be shed, and this is the true food that gives us life. What this shows is that for us to be truly life-giving in our own work, in our own lives, in anything we do, we are only life-giving to the extent that we break a little for the people around us, that we actually give of ourselves in our endeavors. Often I find I might dare to to try to do a good deed for someone, but not if it's out of my way or if it will take too much effort or if it may cost me my money, time, or attention. I notice at work I go about things in a very kind of breezy way, opting for the path of least resistance. And my reluctance to actually let my actions break me a little bit, to put a bit more effort in, put a bit more care, is that they are devoid of being transformational and they lack power. The church fathers have this saying, give blood, receive the spirit, and there's no other way for it. But we resist it. A good example uh, of the kind of attitude that we should have is found in the novel Loris by the Russian writer Eugene Bordolashkin, set in medieval Russia. And in this novel, this doctor Uh, Arseni in this village is treating people who are sick from the plague. 
and he can see his guardian angel around him, right? And he sees this angel, and the angel with its wings is warding off the plague so that he can keep healing the people around him. And he notices that his guardian angel is not getting tired. So he says, angel, do you not tire? And the, angels, and, and the angel says this to him, angels do not tire because they do not scrimp on their strength. If you are not thinking about the finiteness of your strength, you will not tire either. Know, O Arseni, that only he who does not fear drowning is capable of walking on water. If we find that we don't want to miss opportunities, we have to behave in a Christ-like way. That is, a way that truly breaks and gives of its inner resources without stint, without stinginess, without thought of keeping some in the tank or of saving reserves. So to conclude, then, there are many aspects and facets to the sublime mystery of the Eucharist. May God lead us into a deeper awareness of this sacrament, that we may see it for what it really is, true food and true drink, as Christ said in John 6, 55, which we should hunger for even more than earthly food. And this is where we have a good link with fasting, which Daniel McInnes spoke about last week, that we can have through fasting a separation from the physical material food and the physical material things of this world, that we might attach ourselves to that which truly satisfies the greater hunger and that we should always maintain a sense of our unworthiness of such an amazing privilege, but not just to think that and leave it there, but to actually change our lives, and that we should live in a more Eucharistic fashion, offering all we have to God, doing our best with what has been entrusted to us, and having the heart of Christ which breaks and offers of itself to a suffering people. In all these ways, may God hear this prayer, one more line in the words of Saint uh, Ephraim, Make me worthy to approach your gift in awe. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.